2: We live in an unpredictable universe. Minor mishaps happen. My decaf hazelnut mocha spilled across my keyboard again.
3: They just feel big. But the universe also throws major disruption
4: at us.
5: Emerging from the Russian sky, a giant ball of flame.
4: A meteorite providing a spectacular show until it suddenly explodes 30 miles above the Earth.
3: (laughs) And in response to these big events that can stand the world on end, well, it's the nature of human beings to want to put things back together again. We figure out what to salvage, how to rebuild, and how to move
4: forward. Sometimes doing so is simply a matter of survival. In the case of earthquakes, volcanoes, or a hurricane like Sandy, we come out better able to steel ourselves against a repeat of history or other foreseeable catastrophes. And sometimes, in the case of paleontology, we unearth and reassemble as it's a way to make sense of the deep past. I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get the wide-angle view of science and technology, and in this hour, how we go about rebuilding after falling victim to the vicissitudes of existence and the scientific lessons we learn along the way. But first, when disaster strikes. ¶¶
4: Imagine, you're an inhabitant of the island of Sumbawa in the Indonesian archipelago north of Australia, and it's early April, 1815. If you lived there, these first days of the tropical fall would probably be spent growing rice, collecting honey, breeding horses, or perhaps just working out your next sandal would deal with sailors from the Dutch East Indies.
3: On a peninsula extending from the north coast to Sumbawa, a cone-like structure has been belching ash and rumbling for years, but that's just part of Indonesian island life.
6: There are volcanoes all over these islands, hundreds of them. And the people there, they really measure their lives in terms of the incidence of volcanic eruptions. It's something to which they're used to. What they weren't prepared for was an eruption on the scale of Tambora.
4: The eruption of Mount Tambora on April 15, 1815, was more destructive than Mount St. Helens, Vesuvius, or even the monstrous mayhem of Krakatoa.
6: What is singular about Tambora is that it's the largest volcanic explosion probably for the last four or 5,000 years.
3: The atmospheric debris produced what was dubbed the Year Without Summer. It altered the course of history, argues Gillian Darcy Wood in his book on the subject, and yet most people have not heard of Tambora.
4: The eruption guided the pen of writer Mary Shelley, sparked China's opium trade, and taught us that we are inexorably tied together by the threat of global climate, a lesson that's relevant today.
6: Well, the one account that we have is from the Raja of Sangar, so the village chief of a village called Sangar on the slopes uh, really in the foothills of Tambora. And he describes fist-size rain of volcanic rocks cascading down on, on the village. Volcanic winds picking up houses, people, cattle, and whipping them up a little bit like uh, in The Wizard of Oz. You have entire forests being uprooted and the, the trunks of trees being cast into the sea like enormous javelins. Then the secondary aspect of the eruption is, the magma cascading, what scientists call pyroclastic streams of boiling rock flowing down the mountainside. And what happens on a volcanic island is once the flowing magma down the side of the mountain reaches the waters of the sea at a much cooler temperature, this initiates further explosions. So massive explosions with enormous clouds of ash and dust being produced and ejected into
4: the atmosphere. How many people were living on this island and, and how many of them didn't make it?
6: Most of them didn't make it, uh, certainly on the eastern half of the island. The estimate is that over a hundred thousand people died in the due to the explosion and the immediate aftermath of the explosion, which makes it the largest human death toll, the former volcanic eruption in human history.
4: Does, does that uh, the, beat Vesuvius, for example? And... Oh,
6: absolutely. So, it, in excess of, of Pompeii and Vesuvius in eighty seventy nine, uh, in excess of Krakatoa. There were tsunamis as a result, washing away entire coastal villages. Then in the weeks after the eruption, of course, the, everything is covered in a meter high layers of, of ash, so the food crops are ruined. So you have a death toll in the in the six figures.
4: If I were living in Europe at this time, to begin with, I doubt that I would even hear about this, probably not for months, because the, the news didn't travel very quickly in 1815, but even so, I would consider it maybe a sort of an interesting news item, catastrophe on the other side of the world. But they began to suffer as well.
6: Well, it's interesting how this turns out to be a kind of media and communication story. Because my guess is that almost no one in Europe was aware of Tambora's eruption. If you think about when it occurred, 1815 predates by a couple of generations the development of the telegraph. And steamships also. So the news of this event takes months and months to travel to Europe. Unlike Krakatoa, the celebrity volcano that erupts in
4: 1883, news of it is transmitted globally within a day. So the news gets to Europe rather slowly. By that point, it's sort of an historic news item. But the effects in Europe... There were effects from Tambora in Europe, whether they realized that they were due to this volcano or not. Can you describe what those effects were? Certainly. Yes, the the effects were profound. Once you
6: have an envelope of volcanic ash around the globe global cooling as the result so you have drastic shifts in temperature and precipitation due to the the dust that the volcano is throwing into the atmosphere exactly the dust sits in the stratosphere above the major weather system so the dust doesn't doesn't get washed out by clouds and by storms it sits there above the atmosphere and reflects the incoming radiation from the Sun back out into space. And two hundred years ago, Europe, like the rest of the globe, was essentially a subsistence agricultural economy and you had small scale farms relying on temperatures within natural variability. And what Tambora did was to introduce drastically unseasonable temperatures, particularly in the summertime growing period. So you have the worst crop growing conditions in Europe for a thousand years. In Parts of Europe, you had starvation conditions and the major societal breakdowns that we associate with ecological crisis. So you have food riots, you have famine-friendly diseases uh, such as typhus. And so it's in this context that this particular year, 1816, which was the worst, the year without a summer, it's so-called, that Mary Shelley is living in Switzerland in the hardest hit part of Europe and writes the novel Frankenstein. And I argue in the book that she didn't have to look very far to conjure up the image of, of an abandoned, homeless, malformed creature wandering
4: the, the highways of Europe, because people were doing that in their tens of thousands. What about recovery, Gillian? How long did that take, and, and did it ever occur for villages that were close to the volcano?
6: Well, as my visit to Zimbabwe showed me a couple of years ago, Zimbabwe has never fully recovered. It's an extremely poor island. And 50 years after the eruption in 1815, the Dutch visitor there discovered that most of the, the villages there had in fact sold themselves into slavery in the aftermath of Tambora in order to survive. So a devastating impact on the region. There has not been a great deal of archaeological excavation on the Tambora site. A team of archaeologists from the University of Rhode Island has begun the first diggings on the mountain slopes of Tambora and has discovered what appears to have been a a very prosperous community with, in particular, one household they've discovered and a kind of kitchen full of crockery and, and prettily decorated pots and two corpses of what appears to have been a husband and wife who were interrupted from their evening meal by the eruption of Tambora and were killed. And study of their corpses shows that their immolation occurred at far higher temperatures than happened at Pompeii. So I think there is a there is a greater story yet to be told
4: by archaeological digs uh, in the future. Given all these consequences, and they sound very widespread, I have to ask uh, Gillen, Is world history truly different because of this eruption? Or was it, shall we say, merely an unfortunate inconvenience for three years?
6: Yeah, what it actually meant was a three-year global climate breakdown. And I'll just give you a quick list of the major historical impacts that flow on from Tambora. The impact of Tambora on the Indian monsoon, the largest weather system in the world, was quite drastic. Uh, It delayed, deferred the monsoon, diminished its power. So there was a, a terrible drought throughout India. The consequences of which was to alter the disease ecology of the bay of bengal and precipitate a new variant in cholera to which the population was susceptible and which then spread around the entire globe killing tens of millions of people through the 19th century the 19th century would look very very different indeed without global cholera and global cholera would not have occurred in the way it did without tambora as the initial ecological trigger a second one would be the impact on china where a major famine in the southwest encouraged or forced the farmers there to turn from growing rice to growing opium Uh, and you fast forward a hundred years and that area of china is the major opium growing region of the world the foundation of the golden triangle as we call it today with huge historical implications
4: What lesson does Tambora provide for us today? I mean, as we're facing not just the eruption of a volcano, but uh, a slow-motion catastrophe called climate change.
6: I think Tambora is a climate change story. It, It begins as a natural disaster, but it becomes a climate change case study. What it shows us is our vulnerability to rapid changes in the climate. In the case of Tambora, it was cooling and while now we face global warming. But the impact on agriculture is essentially the same. What Tambora did and what global warming is doing today is taking us outside the bounds of natural variability into unknown areas of temperature and precipitation, and suddenly having to adapt our growing of crops and our providing of water to an altered world, really. And the, the cautionary tale that my book tells is that we are vulnerable, and the necessity of adapting and being resilient to change is a, is a massive task, given the potential human consequences.
4: Gillen Darcy Wood, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me.
3: Gillen Darcy Wood is professor of English at the University of Illinois. He's the author of Tambora, The Eruption That Changed the World.
4: Particularly interesting here is the fact that if this eruption had happened just, you know, twenty five years later, they would have had the telegraph and the people in Europe would have heard about it right away. Right. It would have been the Twitter of the time. Well, yeah, I mean it's slow <laughs> Twitter, but but they might have connected it then with what followed, because you know the facts are that the effects of this eruption, the dust and so forth that was going to wreck the climate in Europe, got there faster than the news did. The news was carried aboard these slow-sailing ships.
3: And that is one of the reasons why this eruption has been lost to history in, in some sense, although Gil and Darcy Wood mentioned that the archaeological excavation of Tambora is ongoing and that there are still many answers to be unearthed.
4: Yeah, although I have to say it's remarkable. If you look up on the wiki, Sambawa... There's nothing about this eruption. It's as if it never happened. You know, anyone can edit Wikipedia. Maybe somebody should. However, one of the great catastrophic disruptions to life occurred long, long before humans existed and could rebuild. And today, we put a lot of effort into assembling the skeletons of animals that thrived before the asteroid hit, how we do it, and what we learn next.
3: It's We Can Rebuild It on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez
4: Due to the violence of the eruption on Tambora, some places never recovered. But in others, not quite as close to the volcano, people were able to put their lives back together. Humans are willful. They can plan.
3: But there are instances of natural catastrophe where recovery occurred not as the result of conscious will. 66 million years ago, an asteroid plowed into the Yucatan Peninsula, kicking off decades of global climate change, killing the dinosaurs and most other non-marine species. Recovery came, it's true, but the world did not return to being as it was before the space rock. It was headed in a new direction.
4: But we still want to understand the world prior to the KT boundary, the Cretaceous Tertiary event, to understand the creatures that once roamed the planet.
3: And we go to great lengths using the best of our scientific tools to do this, as evidenced by the journey of one of the nation's largest Tyrannosaurus rex skeletons. After being on display in the Museum of the Rockies for more than two decades, Mr. Dinosaur has gone to Washington. Although it could be a Mrs., we don't know. It's on loan at the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum, but first it had to get
4: there. And doing so is just the latest leg of a journey for the bones of a T-Rex that was buried under sediment long ago. Those bones decayed. They were seeped with water and minerals. Eventually, the minerals replaced the bone, and what was a skeleton became a fossil. It sat and sat just beneath the landscape until erosion and a sharp eye led to its discovery near the Fort Peck Reservoir in Montana by rancher and sometime fossil hunter Kathy Wankel.
3: That was in 1988. Paleontologist Patrick Ligi remembers when the remains were first brought to archaeologists at the museum.
7: Well, it was a bunch of fragmented material in a box. They had carefully packed them in towels and things like that. And when we started putting the fragments together, we could tell that they were probably from some sort of a, an arm bone or a leg bone, things like that. And in this case was small, so we are thinking more arm bone. And at that point in time a complete arm of a Tyrannosaurus rex had not been found. And this turned out to be the first one ever found.
4: My goodness. Well, I'm always impressed when people can tell the difference by just looking in the dirt there between, you know, just a random rock and, I don't know, a small little bone.
7: Yeah, you know, it doesn't take long, really, to train the eye on, you know, the difference between rock and bone. And uh, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult, but to the trained eye, it's not very difficult at all.
4: My goodness. Okay, but this this wasn't just a sort of a run-of-the-mill T-Rex skeleton, right? I mean, this one uh, had more parts.
7: Well, we had to go out and take a look. So the Wonkles took us out to the site where Kathy found the uh, fragmented material, which turned out to be the first arm ever found. And uh, I took out a couple of people just to kind of look at the site, and we determined that there was other fossils in the hill. And as we got into the hill, we realized we had articulated vertebrae, And uh, later on, after two weeks, we actually located the skull.
4: My goodness. So so was it all sort of in one place? I mean, was it where this dinosaur had died?
7: Uh, It was where this dinosaur had died. could have been moved by the stream sediments it was in a little bit, but it looks like it just basically got bogged down in the sediment.
4: Now, I know I'm being very naive, but to me, putting these things together is like putting a, a jigsaw puzzle together, especially since there are a lot of small pieces How do you know where those small pieces go? Is that just expertise that you've developed after doing this for a while?
7: Well, you have to remember this was an adult Tyrannosaurus rex. Much of it was articulated, so that wasn't too difficult to figure out what goes where. As far as the small pieces go, especially with an articulated or an associated animal, those pieces are pretty close to where they came from.
4: You say articulated, and that means what in this sense?
7: That means that the bones um, were still joined together. And if they're associated, that means they haven't moved very far apart from one another.
4: So it's still pretty much laid out the way it fell.
7: It was beautiful.
4: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, you decided not to keep this in Bozeman. It's going, uh, it's, it's going on travel. So how did you uh, ship them off? I mean, did you just put each bone in a separate FedEx box? <laughs>
7: <laughs> how do you do this? Very carefully. We make what are called cradles, and they're kind of like clamshells out of plaster and uh, kind of a fibrous material. So it, it actually holds the bones in place. Everything is crated. Everything is put in place so it can't move at all.
4: And and then you put them into just a random truck or
7: Well, no, not a random truck. It's an air ride truck, and it's actually environmentally controlled, also. And when it was driven out to the Smithsonian, it went nonstop. It did not stop at all.
4: What are the sorts of uh, questions we'd like to answer with with uh, a skeleton like this? I mean, you mentioned the forearm, and I think anybody who's seen uh, Tyrannosaurus rex depicted in the movies or on the walls of a museum, you know, those little short forearms, they they, they look kind of useless. Do, do we know what they were used for and will this tell us if we don't?
7: Well, this is a really big debate. It has been forever. Um, <laughs> and it's one of those things. There's two sides. Uh, you know, one side is saying, well, they have that much of an arm for one reason or another. And others say they're totally useless. Uh, when we were in Washington, uh, Jack Horner, our curator, made the joke about all they could really do is scratch their bellies. Well, Matt Carano, at the National Museum of Natural History countered saying, well, if you're saying that it's used to scratch its belly, then they aren't useless. So, I mean, that was uh, in jest, of course. But but the point is, is that paleontologists still have not figured out what those arms are for.
4: Do the bones tell us anything about how this animal died? I mean, was it the result of some sort of catastrophe? I, I suppose it's unlikely that it was involved in the asteroid impact that wiped out many of its relatives, but you know, do do we know anything about what did it in?
7: Not really. All we can really say about this particular one is that it, you know, it died in a, or was, um, it ended up in a stream channel, you have to remember, I mean, this was an adult Tyrannosaurus rex, and some of the studies uh, on as far as trying to age these animals through histological processes, things like that, um, put the, uh, uh, the age of an adult at about 18 years, maybe a little more. But, you know, we don't even know if we have found the largest T. rex yet. We don't know if we've found the oldest T. rex yet. Um, and that's why paleontologists continue to go out in the field and look for new information. Finally, who has the bones right now? Where is the T-Rex? Our nation's T-Rex is at the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian Institution, right there in the mall in Washington, D.C.
4: I'm looking forward to seeing it.
7: Great. (laughs) Pat Leege, thank you so very much for talking with us. You bet. It was my pleasure.
3: Patrick Leege is a paleontologist and director of exhibits at the Museum of the Rockies, Montana State University, Bozeman.
5: My name is Matthew Carano, and I'm the curator of Dinosauria at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History.
4: Last we heard, the truck filled with crates of dinosaur bones was leaving Montana.
5: The truck drove directly from uh, Montana, basically nonstop. So it arrived uh, in the middle of the night, and uh, we pretty quickly had the stuff brought into the building. So I was here the next morning when the crates were here inside the museum.
3: Well, Matt, how do you put a dinosaur together? I mean, like, what holds it together? Is it a kind of glue or some sort of nail? What do you do?
5: The way we assemble skeletons today is through a system not too different from what's been done in the past in that it relies mostly on a metal armature. And so each bone has a custom-made metal saddle or cradle And those are connected to one another. So we don't directly connect the bones to other bones, but rather we connect the support for the bone to the support for the next bone.
3: Okay, so it's not the hip bone is connected to the leg bone, it's the hip bone is connected to the metal cradle, which is connected to the leg bone.
5: Exactly. Um, (laughs) Although if we do a good job, it should look like the hip bone is connected to the leg bone.
3: (laughs) A lot of effort goes into digging up, assembling, disassembling, packing, and transporting a 66-million-year-old fossil Why are we driven to do all this work, Matt, to protect and study old, old fossilized bones?
5: It's a good question. I think from the scientist's perspective, every fossil we find has the potential to give us information we didn't have before. Um, When it's something like a dinosaur, which is an incredibly complicated organism, there's just hundreds of pieces, we almost never get them all. So even a really complete dinosaur is usually missing some part of the skeleton And of course, we're missing all the rest of it, all the soft things as well. So every fossil might give us some piece that we don't already have. And scientifically, that's, I think, what drives us. But on the other side, there's just, I think, a really compelling excitement and story to the whole process of discovery and being the first person who ever saw a fossil. Every time you dig a fossil up, you're the first person who ever saw it in the history of the universe.
3: And what is it that one single bone could tell a scientist about how this animal lived 66, 65 million years ago, or about its environment?
5: Well, for example, you can look inside the bone, uh, and dinosaurs, as they grow, they build new bone on a yearly cycle. And so if we look inside the bone, we can see essentially the equivalent of tree rings, that can help us understand exactly how old that individual dinosaur was when it died and the rate at which it grew by the thickness of those rings. In addition, oftentimes the minerals inside the bone record some information about the environment through the geochemistry, and that might tell us something about the ancient temperature of that environment or how wet it was or things like that.
3: Is it more valuable scientifically, or perhaps you could compare the two efforts, to look at the bones individually as they're laid out in front of you and, and look at them under microscopes or, or use chemical analysis, or to assemble them into a whole dinosaur? Which is more instructive?
5: From the scientific perspective, I think there's, there's not an enormous amount we gain from putting it together as a whole animal that we can't do with those pieces separately. And in general, what we might be interested in is, is something like how the animal moved. And with something like a T-Rex, you can't just pick these bones up and start moving them. They're just too big. So nowadays, we do a lot of things with computer modeling. We're gonna, one of the things we'll do here is we'll, we're going to 3D scan all of the bones. And that will allow us to have a model digitally that's accurate down to below a millimeter. And we can manipulate the model instead of the fossils. And that can be really quite useful if you're interested in ranges of motion of the limb bones or things like that.
3: Was the T-Rex idiosyncratic in in how it walked or ran?
5: One of the really compelling things about T-Rex is just how enormous it is, and especially as a predator. It's about as big a predator as you seem to be able to evolve on land. And so there's a lot of interesting things about that. Uh, One is that it only has two legs to stand on, so it might be that that's as big as you can get and still move around on two legs. Another thing is that its legs are actually kind of long, and so does that mean it was a faster dinosaur, or does that mean it had a big territory? There's a lot of sort of unusual questions, and T. rex is interesting because it's sort of pushing the limits, and so it might be telling us something about the guidelines for being a giant predator uh, on land.
3: Well, what are some of the big questions, and I know there are a lot, about dinosaurs that we still have or that we hope to answer by looking at these bones?
5: One of the things that we are getting a little bit better at is understanding the biology of dinosaurs and and other fossil organisms. But we are still, I think, in the early phases of doing that. So I think we know a lot about the Skeletons of dinosaurs and the things that we can learn pretty directly from a skeleton, but all the other stuff of an animal, you know, how does it breathe, how do the senses work, or, or even basic stuff like how to tell males from females because the, the reproductive organs are, are soft tissues in these animals. But if you're a female reptile, when you are in the process of making eggs, in a sense you you have to steal the calcium from your skeleton to do that and so during that time the skeleton records this process with a special tissue called medullary bone so if a dinosaur were to die during the time that it was making eggs you can find that tissue in the bone and there are a handful of dinosaurs where we found that tissue and so we know that it was an egg-laying female the problem is that if you don't find the tissue you don't know if it's a male or a female that wasn't laying eggs. So, and so that's most of our dinosaurs, unfortunately.
3: So the T-Rex that just landed on your doorstop, mm-hmm. uh, you don't know whether or not that's a, a Sioux, another Sioux or a Rex. You don't know if it's male or female.
5: That's right. And in truth, we don't know that Sioux was a female either.
3: <laughs> well, finally, will the bones of the Wonkel T-Rex ever see the Museum of the Rockies again?
5: They should. We have an agreement, and at the end of our 50-year loan, they are scheduled to be returned to the state of Montana, and I presume to the Museum of the Rockies would be happy to receive them again. So it's a long time, but obviously in the grand scheme of this dinosaur, it's a blink of an eye.
3: Matt Carano, thank you so much for speaking with us.
5: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
4: Matthew Carano is the curator of Dinosauria at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. We've been talking about natural disasters, a volcano, an asteroid, how we learn from their aftermath hundreds, even millions of years later. But there are also human-made catastrophes, and in those cases, the timescales for rebuilding can be much shorter. One of the world's most diverse ecosystems, Garongoza National Park in Mozambique, is home to a who's who of African flora and fauna, large and small. Some species are found nowhere else in the world. But the park was nearly
3: entirely destroyed, and the animal numbers there driven to near extinction when Civil War broke out in the late 1970s, followed by poaching.
4: Then in the 1990s, after more than 15 years of conflict, an effort was undertaken to rebuild the park. Today, Gorongosa National Park is thriving, and it's an example of how nature rebounds when given some help.
3: Greg Carr is an entrepreneur and philanthropist who was invited by the government of Mozambique to help restore the park through conservation biology, along with a team of local and international helpers. He is now president of Gorongosa National Park.
1: Yeah, so Mozambique first fought for its independence from Portugal. It was a colony, and it got its independence in 1974 after 15 years of war, and then a civil war broke out, which was basically a right-wing, left-wing, so to speak, And the rebel army attacking the newly independent government hid in Gorongosa National Park for a decade. And while they were there, they ate a lot of the animals and they would shoot elephants and trade the ivory for weapons. So they funded their war effort off of Gorongosa Park. And at the end of the war in 92, 95% of the large animals were gone. Is it accurate to say
4: that of these uh, large charismatic megafauna, only the crocodile was left?
1: Out of 4,000 elephants, there were about 100 left. Out of several thousand hippos, there were less than 100 left. There used to be 500 lions in the greater Gorongosa ecosystem. When I arrived, we could only find six. But yes, the crocodiles did just fine because... They're tough to poach, and they disappear into the water. So there were probably 20,000 crocodiles surviving, the only large animal species that actually did well in the war. Greg, you were invited in 2004 to help restore
4: the park. Uh, what did you see as step one in rebuilding it, and, and who needed to be involved?
1: So the the government of Mozambique invited my foundation to join with them to restore Gorongosa Park, and we signed a 20-year contract to do that. Uh, When I arrived, I could drive for hours and see nothing more than maybe one baboon or one warthog. Uh, Step number one was to build the trust of the local community, the 200,000 subsistence farmers who live around Gorongosa National Park. And we started to building them schools and building them health clinics because at the end of the day, Gorongosa Park is only going to survive and be protected if the human beings that live around it are benefiting from the park.
4: There's a photo on your website of uh, buffaloes running like crazy from the open door of a truck. Uh, I assume this was the introduction of our reintroduction of buffaloes back into the park. What what happened to those
1: buffaloes? We were able to get 200 Cape buffalo from Kruger National Park in South Africa and we brought them up to Gorongosa and now there's about 600. So that's a successful reintroduction. Similarly with wildebeest, there were none left after the war. We also purchased 200 of those from South Africa. And now there's five or six hundred wildebeest. So those populations are coming back very well. And the good news about nature is it's very resilient. And as soon as we leave it alone, as soon as we stop over-harvesting, the numbers come back. So for the vast numbers of of species in Gorongosa, they're doing just fine when we humans leave them alone. You know, it, it almost sounds as if you had just left it
4: alone and not done anything. It was just a matter of time and the park would rebound. But clearly that's not the case. What were the critical things you had to do to affect this
1: change? First, we had to hire and train a new ranger force to protect the park and to protect the animals. We hired 60 foresters on Mount Gorongosa to replant saplings on eroded parts of that mountain. We reintroduced large species we hired 120 rangers and we hired them from the local population and those are good jobs and we trained them and those rangers have collected thousands of snares and there were snares all over the ecosystem in every place you can imagine and not just catching uh, the antelopes and herbivores but sadly the the snares will also catch the far more rare uh, lions and leopards and every single month our rangers are out there retrieving hundreds and hundreds of snares. So there have been a number of active interventions that we've needed to take to bring the park back to a equilibrium, and, and I think we're getting there. The wildlife is flourishing now. I drive around for two or three hours in the park, and I'm overwhelmed. I might see 50 bird species. I'll see a dozen antelope species.
4: The interaction of different species with the ecosystem, I know obviously that's a very complex story, but maybe you can share with us an example of how how this interaction occurs in even
1: small ways. One of the reasons that Gorongosa National Park ecosystem can and, and is recovering is that the tiny things were still there. The, the insects, the invertebrates, and the, and the, and the small mammals and, and so forth. And because the larger species depend upon those smaller species. Just as an example, because the hippos were reduced by 95%, there were fewer birds in the park. Now, I, I wouldn't have thought how many hippos you have it makes a difference on how many birds you have. But hippos keep waterways flowing and streams healthy because at night they eat grass and then the day they hide in the water and they go to the bathroom and that creates a nutrient cycle. And the fish need that and the insects need that. And the number of insects you have and the number of small fish you have affects the number of birds you have. So pretty soon you realize that all of these species one way or another are dependent upon each other. But the ecosystem itself is rich in biodiversity, and when you're looking at it, it's almost as if you're looking back in time to the Miocene, you're looking back in time, five million years. And the reason I say that is it's very possible that not a lot has changed. 95% of the of the species that, that we have in the Gorongosa area now probably had their current form in the Miocene. And for we human beings, when we're in Gorongosa, we're looking into our distant past. We're looking to where we came from as a species and, be, and where the species before us came from. And preserving that is kind of exciting to me. I feel like we're, we're saving our origins. Maybe
4: there ought to be a movie, Miocene Park, except this time they,
1: they, can, they can film it with, with live photography. You don't need that computer animation. <laughs> well, I also hope that when we're in Gorongosa that we're not just looking into the past several million years. I hope we're looking into the future. And if we protect the ecosystem and let it evolve on its own, then it may be there hundreds of years from now, thousands of years from now for everyone to enjoy. Greg Carr, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you.
4: Greg Carr is an entrepreneur and philanthropist whose
3: efforts led to the restoration of Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. He is president of the park.
4: Rather fitting, don't you think, that this is taking place in Africa, which, after all, was the natural habitat of our ancestors, too. That's where Homo sapiens arose.
3: Once the dinosaurs got out of the way. Yeah,
4: well, that's right. We just would have been, I don't know, hors d'oeuvres for them. Coming up, how we face reconstruction when all is lost. Lewis Dartnell explains how to rebuild our world from scratch.
3: It's We Can Rebuild It from Big Picture Science.
7: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries.
3: We've been hearing about how to rebuild a natural environment and a case in which it was done with success, but we are a civilization dependent on tools. And for humans, our natural environment can't be separated from our technological environment.
4: Which you can appreciate as you pick up the radio waves or the bits and bytes of big picture science after they've come to you via a transmitter or a coaxial cable and while you sit in a plastic chair or in your metal car or in a climate-controlled building or just walk down the sidewalk in shoes. Even if you just got water out of the tap today, you've enjoyed the convenience of
2: technology.
3: Now getting here has been the long accumulation of building our devices better, faster, and stronger. We can condense this tale, however.
2: All right, so we begin with fire. Then chipping stone gives you flint arrowheads. Then smelting technology gives you the axe, the sword, and the saw. Goodbye, bronze. Hello, iron. All tools get better. Plus, we get nails. Boom. Then you got gunpowder and guns. Muscles get a break with water wheels, windmills, and the steam engine, although, personally, I still go to the gym. Zap, then you got electricity. Next thing you know, you're reading at night and taking the elevator to the 10th floor. Oh yeah, the pounding of wood pulp to make paper and feeding it to a printing press. That changes everything. That should have been back there earlier. Sorry about that. Motors, transformers, alternating current, and we're messaging by telegraph. Then yapping by telephone. Link carbon polymers and you get plastic eyeglass frames, linoleum, and outdoor furniture. My Uncle Polly can get you a deal on a patio set, by the way. Internal combustion engine, turbine engine, and rockets. Things really speed up. And for the finish line, radar, television, FM radio, antibiotics, skyscrapers, nuclear bombs, computers, synthetic fabrics, garage door openers, can openers, DVD players, golf carts, and the Internet. So what if we had to do
4: it all over? What if we were returning to its original state, not an African wilderness park, but civilization itself, the ultimate do-over?
3: That is the intriguing, if also disturbing, thought experiment in a book from Louis Dartnell, an astrobiologist at the University of Leicester. The knowledge, how to rebuild our world from scratch. He asks, what if by dint of some catastrophic event, we all had to go back to square one? Could we? Would we? And what would we do first?
0: If you find yourself in some kind of post-apocalyptic scenario, you've kind of woken up the morning after the night before, when the world, as we know, ended, if you like. The first things you want to be able to ensure for yourself, just for your kind of basic survival and your health, are things like access to shelter and food. And particularly in the first hours and days, you've got to be certain you've got access to kind of uncontaminated water because that's the first thing that will kill you. And there's very interesting science behind questions like how can I make certain my drinking water is uncontaminated? And then you can boil it, for example, to kill kind of waterborne disease. Or if you're kind of scavenging in the abandoned dead cities, you could get things like... Bleach from underneath any household kitchen sink, or even kind of chlorine that's used to, uh, in swimming pools. You can use that, dilute it down a lot, and that's good to decontaminate, to, to disinfect your drinking water. Make sure you don't come down with something like cholera in, in the immediate aftermath of the apocalypse. So, yeah.
4: job number one at the beginning is to make sure that you live. To do job number two, and that's presumably to rebuild society. I mean, exactly. Now, yeah. it's I figure it's taken ten thousand years to build civilization's infrastructure. A lot of it is damaged or destroyed in this scenario. Is it going to take us another 10,000 years to get back to where we were?
0: Well, no, the hope is that with hindsight, perhaps if you had a book that described all the crucial scientific discoveries and technological innovations that you want to try and recover as quickly as possible, the hope is that you could accelerate that recovery period. So it wouldn't take 10,000 years to go to from the kind of very beginnings of agriculture and the first cities up to antibiotics and radio and electricity we have today. The hope is that if you have the territory mapped out for you, you can navigate some kind of shortcut, some kind of optimal route through the science and technology and build up your capability much, much faster to, to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, perhaps in a matter of centuries or just a, a few generations rather than it taking thousands of years as you kind of stumble around in the darkness as we had to do the first time around.
4: Okay, so no thousand years of dark ages necessarily.
0: That'd be the hope exactly. you could skip, you could avert a second dark ages and I'd say you could recover much, much faster than it took us the first time.
4: I think that the difference must be simply, well, kind of obvious. I mean, when when they went through this the first time, nobody had the knowledge to rebuild things. I mean, they just didn't know about it. They didn't know the experience. They didn't know about things like mechanized transport or telegraphs or or things like that that we know about, so we know sort of what we want to build.
0: Exactly that, and and I pick out a couple of gateway technologies, I call them, things you want to reinvent as quickly as you can. And one great example is the printing press that allows you to rapidly replicate human thought and kind of disperse those copies throughout the entire population. Because before the printing press, documents only got copied by handwriting. You had roomfuls of scribes who would be handwriting to replicate and copy documents, which meant only the rich and powerful were able to bankroll, that kind of thing. But with the printing press, knowledge itself becomes democratized. And it's that kind of game-changing technology that you want to recover and reinvent as quickly as you can when you're going right back to the beginning, right back to basics, and trying to rebuild a civilization from scratch.
4: One thing that's very interesting about your thought experiment, Lewis, is the uh, list of substances or processes that most of us have really no knowledge about. It sounds like the, I don't know, the angel is in the details. If we were wanting to reboot the world, we'd want to get our hands on some calcium carbonate. Tell me a little bit about why we'd want to do that.
0: Yeah, so so calcium carbonate or, or limestone or chalk is one of these things that is utterly critical to the way that civilization runs today and has been throughout centuries or millennia. And it's the kind of basic chemistry you can do with this and if you bake limestone in a kiln or furnace you get to quick lime which you mix with a bit of water to make slake lime and you mix this with soda ash which you can extract from the ashes of a fire where you've burnt seaweed or kind of saltwort plants and you make caustic soda And so this very, very basic chemistry we've been using for centuries is absolutely critical for making things like soap to maintain hygiene and stop you succumbing to preventable diseases, for making paper and recording your thoughts and kind of building up records over time and amassing knowledge from scratch again, and for making glass one of these fundamental substances that we we just... you don't even kind of overlook, we just look through glass, literally, in our modern world. We've forgotten just how important it is. And for the... Rebooting of knowledge and you know, of science, glass is an absolutely unique substance. It is the only thing that you can make using the basic chemistry I explain the knowledge that is both relatively strong and see-through. And you've got to have something with that special, unique combination of properties to make things like test tubes where you can run chemistry experiments and see what happens, or to grind into lenses to make a microscope or a telescope to explore the world around you. And all that comes down to basic substances like limestone and slaked lime and soda ash.
4: What about cement? Is calcium carbonate used in cement?
0: Exactly, so quicklime and clay make clinker, which is the basis of the cement, the ordinary Portland cement, and concrete. And concrete itself, we kind of forget is an ancient technology itself, that the Romans invented concrete, and it was almost forgotten, it was almost lost to history with the collapse of their civilization.
4: Well, let's talk about some of these other technologies, because it's absolutely fascinating what you can do. Hmm. We would need a source of energy. We would need a power source to manufacture things, to grind wheat, whatever it was. And you're suggesting that the first thing to do is to go back to power supplies that were popular before the Industrial Revolution, before the steam engine, things
0: like wind and water. Describe what we could build there. Absolutely. One of the things you need to be able to provide for yourself is this kind of mechanical power. And the very basis of this might be something like, you've recovered agriculture, you're harvesting cereal crops, you're getting the grain back out of the field so you can eat, so you can feed yourself, but you can't actually eat the grain itself. It's kind of hard and, and you can't really chew through it. So what we've done throughout history is grind up that grain into flour. And originally we would've just literally had a rock in our hand and kind of ground those seeds, those grain underneath another rock to grind them into flour. And over time we've, we've found more and more efficient ways of doing that, and these milling stones are basically just a technological extension to our own molar teeth, to our teeth that grind up food, and we just do it much more efficiently and effectively with technology. And so, one of the mechanical solutions you want to be able to reinvent would be something like a water wheel or a windmill, and I provide diagrams for those in the book. So, windmill, as I say, is just a technological invention for easing human toil and not having to do everything with kind of back-breaking labour, but to achieve. A very, very fundamental requirement, which is unlocking the nutrients in the grain that you harvest from the field, simply so you don't starve to death.
4: This is kind of a grim scenario, Lewis, rebooting society from scratch, and yet, you know, your book is pretty optimistic, so this is not because you're a nihilist. Uh, What's the source of your
0: optimism? I'm not for a second trying to say the world is about to end. I sincerely hope it doesn't. I'm not some kind of doomsayer. I don't have a, a the end of the world is nigh placard kind of around my neck. The basis behind this whole book, behind the knowledge, as I say, it's just a thought experiment. It's kind of holding up this notion of the apocalypse. It's a way of holding up a mirror to our society and asking some really deep questions about what it is our society does, how our civilization. Functions And I say it, it's an optimistic book. It's a very hopeful book because it turns out that a lot of this stuff can be boiled down to the very kernel of knowledge that you want to preserve.
4: Well, finally, Lewis, do you have a lot of tools in your basement?
0: <laughs> I, I actually would be rubbish, I think, trying to rebuild civilization from scratch. I've got about two days' worth of baked beans in my cupboard and a very small toolbox, which I use for, you know, kind of hanging up a couple of frames, picture frames at home.
4: The hanging up the picture frames might not be the uh, first order of business,
0: but perhaps not. No, but but during the research for this book, I made sure I did develop a lot of first-hand experience of stuff, and I spent a day in a traditional seventeenth-century blacksmith working by a, you know an open hearth with a hammer and an anvil, and I made a tool for myself from scratch. I made a knife, took it home and cut some bread and some cheddar made myself a grilled cheese. So it was a bit of fun, but it was, a, it was kind of a microcosm of how our civilization has progressed over time as you kind of try something once and it doesn't quite work, but you know how it fails, so you go back and you improve each time as you go kind of round and round the cycles. Lewis Dartnell, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks ever so much.
3: Lewis Dartnell is an astrobiologist at the University of Leicester. He is the author of The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch. So that is the human response, is to rebuild and reassemble civilization itself if we had to.
4: And that's the difference between us and you know all the other critters on the planet. Because we've got a brain and we've got history, we kind of know how to rebuild a world. We don't have to just leave it to nature the way it happened 66 million years ago. But in the case of Gorongosa
3: Park, we were the ones that destroyed it. So maybe human intelligence is not always employed in these cases, and that was an instance where us getting out of the way is actually what allowed nature to take over. Well, thanks to a production team that cannot be duplicated, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Molly Sharlock.
4: Also support from Google. Rena david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
3: Your ears have been attuned to We Can Rebuild It. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. You can find it on
4: iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because it was built with more interesting tools... Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion... But especially
3: a comment or a suggestion.
4: (laughs) Yes, chime in on Facebook or use that thing they call electronic mail, BigPictureScience at SETI.org.
2: build him we have the technology better stronger faster